I'm Jacob Kurtzer. And I'm Kirsten Gelsdorf. And this is Beyond Aid, a podcast that takes you beyond the challenging headlines of humanitarian crises. And dives deeper into the people, ideas, and issues that may help us find ways to connect to humanitarian action. In today's conversation, I speak with Peter Maurer, president of the International Committee of the Red Cross, about his decision to lead the ICRC, the need to focus on the wins and not just the challenges, and what gives him hope for the future as he nears the end of his term. Peter, welcome, and thank you for joining us on Beyond Aid. Thanks, Jake, for having me. Peter, in this series, we're talking about how humanitarian workers can find and maintain optimism and compassion in times of crisis. And so I wanted to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your motivation to join the ICRC in the first place and any apprehensions you may have had when taking on the leadership of an organization that carries such a heavy burden. When I decided to join the ICRC 10 years ago, this immediate reflection was about joining an institution with relevance and impact. I have been for 25 years a diplomat for the Swiss Confederation. I have seen bilateral, multilateral action, but leading an organization which is closer to demands, needs of people and communities, you have more immediate, visible impact on people's lives and what you do is more relevant. Apprehensions, I wouldn't say, although I was a little bit anxious at the beginning. My apprehension was how will it be to be at the helm of an organization which is focusing on one specific dimension, humanitarian response to people's need. I discovered how broad the agenda of the ICRC is, uh, that this is a multidisciplinary organization which doesn't just look at either a specific group of people or a specific dimension of humanitarian work, but is much more devoted to an integrated approach to people's needs and communities' needs. And so these apprehensions were easily lifted. In your answer, you mentioned proximity and relevance. Both of those are proximity, in this case, to persons affected by conflict. And relevance is the capacity, the ability to actually change their lives. How have you found that experience since joining the ICRC? On the one side, you indeed see the confirmation of relevance and impact. You see it by the day when you visit programs in the field. You see that what you do and what you decide are changing lives of people, individuals, and communities and groups of people in very specific circumstances. And then on the other side, you are confronted with such an overwhelming amount of needs that unquestionably you ask yourself about the overall relevance and about the cyclic nature of some of the humanitarian work. That's when I listen sometimes to my predecessors we have all gone through a similar process that after a certain amount of time dedicated to neutral and impartial humanitarianism, you feel what is lacking at neutral and impartial humanitarianism. It's the bridge to more ambitious societal objectives. It's 
what you should work towards to its prevention of conflict, its prevention of violence, its bridges to peace building, bridges to sustainable development, bridges to more normal lives. While remaining neutral and impartial, you have a responsibility which is broader than humanitarian. I've heard you offer a perspective that while it's natural to focus on the negative impacts of war and conflict, in particular for the ICRC, violations of international humanitarian law, it's also equally important to focus on violations that haven't happened. I'm curious if you could explain to us why, from a leadership perspective, you think pushing that view and presenting that perspective is so important. The focus on the overfocus on violation is only one dimension. And when you look at society's community at large, even in the worst of conflicts, you meet people and communities who are seriously engaged in orienting their behavior at the law. While violations happen, it is also important to give a voice to those who genuinely engage in order to respect norms and principles. Society's focus on violation and on punishment, and they see too often punishment as conducive to compliance. Compliance doesn't only come from the threat of punishment and accountability. It comes from embracing the norm as an ethical principle and as a normative principle for society. You don't kill because you are punished when killing. You don't kill because it's the wrong thing to do. And I think it is so important that we give a voice to these value-based decisions in society which make people respect international humanitarian law. That's also the reason why ICRC has started a major research project over the last couple of years, systematically collecting good examples of respect, looking on how can we frame and uh, somehow counter a dominant narrative that international humanitarian law is a normative system going down the drain, and it's anyway not respected, it's always violated, and therefore it's useless. International humanitarian law is at times violated, but it is also at many times respected. And because it is respected, it's a valuable framework to prevent the worst in societies, to orient societies. It's a reference framework for our dialogue with armed actors in the field. So it's a heavily operational, important and relevant instrument. Have you seen that same concept hold through on the assistance side of the house, that there tends to be a focus on need while we miss out on the work that's happening at the community and local level in terms of responding to the needs of fellow citizens, countrymen and neighbors? It first came with the recognition that needs of populations and communities are very specific, that we needed to listen to communities, the articulation of what they wanted to do, what they found as a priority. The second thing is that the recognition that wherever we go and we bring assistance, we don't do it in a place where there is nothing. There is always something going on. There is the ingenuity of people, people helping themselves. I do agree that a major shift has happened in the last year. I still see too often 
in emergencies in particular, rushing of substitution activities by humanitarian and development actors, which I think is not the way to go. It's really sometimes more useful to take an additional day or two to think what is really needed here and then to shape a response according to the needs as they are articulated by communities and not as they are assessed by semi or professional organizations devoted to humanitarian action. You come off as an optimistic person. Do you consider yourself optimistic? And if so, why is that important in leading an organization like the ICRC? Maybe not before starting the job, but after starting the job, I had some apprehensions about the humanitarian community complaining 24 hours a day and being skeptical, being negative, and basically describing the world only in terms of disaster. This contrasted very much with my experience from the front line, where despite all the odds, I see a lot of people with a perspective which is much more positive than maybe the community voice as a whole. It is important that we give voice to those positive voices. And that's maybe why I sometimes overemphasize this aspect because others underemphasize this aspect. There is another issue, which is a tactical one. At the end of the day, it's counterproductive when you go out to fundraise for humanitarian needs to portray a situation which is hopeless. Why should anybody spend money on something which is hopeless? It's so important to give positive stories so that those who support humanitarian work also see that there is a transformative dimension in humanitarian work in which people envisage the future differently. And it's the positive stories which are impressing a broader public rather than the negative one. You have to be careful to find the right balance between shrewd analytics, which help you find the negative forces and the challenges and not try to embellish with positive stories and paper over some of the huge discrepancies, differences, inequalities and inequities, which you encounter in humanitarian and development context. So it's a delicate balance to find in an organization. So you talked about the potential transformative power of humanitarian action. As you survey the landscape now, are there things specifically that bring you hope? What brings most hope is to see that people have been active before we get active, even as a frontline humanitarian organization. There is sometimes a little bit of an ideology on where and who is the frontline in humanitarian work. What gives me most hope is when I come into a context and see that we are not a frontline which is needed, but the frontline has already started to work before we were there. And that our task is rather to encourage, to supplement, to enlarge, to scale, to speed the response of the frontline. Early in your career, before joining the ICRC, you were once a diplomat stationed in South Africa. 
And subsequently, as president of the ICRC, you returned and gave a speech in Johannesburg at Constitution Hill. I'm curious if you could speak a little bit about that experience, seeing the transformation of that particular location and what that meant to you and why that place is so significant. My posting as a Swiss diplomat in apartheid South Africa was an important experience. It was the first genuine outside of Switzerland experience as a diplomat that I had. And therefore, it was an, and is an emblematic place in which I made my first steps as a diplomat in a very controversial and unjust society where I was particularly happy to go back to Constitution Hill, Johannesburg, a place which was a prison before, the emblematic place where high-value detainees like Nelson Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi and others were sitting in, and to be there as a president of ICRC to articulate what is so important also about humanitarian work and constitutionalism. It is important to always to remind that compliance with international humanitarian law is maybe the first frontier of moving towards the rule of law in society, to move towards constitutionalism. Society needs to be governed by law and not by power and random decisions. It was an emotional moment to see the place of injustice transformed into a museum to remember injustice, but also the place which is the embodiment of the constitutional development in South Africa, hosting the Constitutional Court. We have, as part of our preparation for this series, spoken with a refugee from Sierra Leone who formed a musical group. They play wonderful, vibrant music, but they sing about themes about being a refugee and living in conflict areas. And I recall that on one of your visits to Washington, you asked to go out to see some music. You and I, we went to the 930 Club, Rolling Stone's number one concert venue in the United States, by the way. And we saw the Carolina Chocolate Drops, which was a bluegrass kind of band from North Carolina. I'm curious in your travels, if you try to make a habit of doing things outside of just talking to the leaders and visiting the camps and trying to engage in different kinds of cultural or organic experiences in those contexts. I truly believe that the very essence of cultural expression is that it transcends somehow the different disciplines, the spaces, the places. Whenever I do have an opportunity, I certainly enjoy and appreciate getting outside of the formality of professional tasks, whether it is music, which is particularly able to build bridges amongst societies because it touches other senses than intellect, whether it is architecture, museum, whether it is just very frankly sensing the atmospherics of a place in which we are, these are things I immensely enjoy. What I do regularly, as you may know, is going out to run in the morning, and it allows me to do sightseeings of a lot of places. This is my most consistent moment to get outside of agendas and people meeting and get a sense on what a city and a country look like. I was 
more than capable of identifying and going to the 930 club, but running at five o'clock in the morning was beyond my scope. So I'm glad you're able to do it. I want to come back to the optimism question or the hopefulness question. If you can speak to either how maintaining a sense of optimism is so important for leading an organization and the individuals within it, and what kind of messages you try to share when speaking to the staff that help maintain that same sense of spirit and purpose for all the individuals who are doing the work on a daily basis. It's important to make people understand that they are important contributors to this overall effort, which is a great motivator. We have seen it in internal staff polls. The more people, the closer they are, and the more difficult situation they experience, the happier they are. Happiness within the institution comes with a strong effort to really try to reduce bureaucratic distance as good as possible. We have become a big organization. You can't make it without bureaucracy, without procedure, without hierarchy, without institutions. At the same time, we need to somehow get as many as we can into proximity to real and significant work. That, what I think, creates satisfaction. If you have a good institution with a good purpose and a good mandate, and good people, people will be very happy. The big challenge today is how you create satisfaction in a job when organizations get big, structured, bureaucratic, and where you have to reset and recreate within an institution a sense of community. My effort has always been to shift the cursor a little bit more from structures, procedures, and bureaucracies to having communities engaged for people. And this has consequences on the direct way of how you lead and manage an institution, but it is a challenge each and every day. And I don't want to pretend with this podcast that everybody is happy at ICRC because they are not. And we have challenges as any other organization. President Peter Maurer, thank you so much for joining us on Beyond Aid. Thanks a lot, Jake. Great talking to you. Next time on the podcast, we're going beyond leadership one last time with Radia Al-Mutawakil, co-founder and chairperson of Matana Organization for Human Rights in Yemen. Thank you for listening to Beyond Aid. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. To make sure you don't miss our next episode, subscribe to Beyond Aid on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.